Well, thank you for that spirited singing this morning as we try to enter into God's presence and praise His name. He is, as we sang the Psalm 113, one of my favorite psalms that pictures this God who is far above the heavens, His glory is above all, and the psalm gets Him so high that you're almost like, is it, he's so high and I'm so down here, but then he says, but he, he raises the poor out of the dust and bringeth the needy out of the dunghill to set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. So it's wonderful to think about God's glorious, exalted person, how high that he is. We can't get him high enough than to think that this glorious God who's so far above us reaches down to where we are. He condescends. He condescends to bring people out of the dust and out of the dunghill to make us princes. So it's just amazing. I always need to remember those two elements of God's greatness, his incredible greatness, but his wonderful condescension in grace to sinners. And I just thank God that he condescends to people to people like me. Let, let's pray if we could one more time before we look to God's word. Father God, we come before you this morning. The only way that we can come to you is through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, through his, his perfect intercession. Thank you that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is, as it were, our defense attorney, who speaks on our behalf. And Lord, thank you that he doesn't even have to twist your arm because you're our Father and you see the perfect work that he's done. So thank you that we can come to your presence this morning as, as your children, Lord, as, as heirs of grace. And I thank you for that so much. I pray that you would bless us now as we look into your word. Lord, help us to help help me as the speaker and your people here as the hearers. May, may you make the word profit our souls today, I pray. And give us of your spirit to understand and be glorified, we pray. Thank you that you condescend to us, Father. Thank you that, that you do reach down to poor and needy sinners. And may we ever um, be thankful for that. May we ever worship you for who you are. I pray in Jesus' name, and amen. This morning, let's turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. I've been trying to speak through this book at home at Collierville Church and have really enjoyed this study. And I'll read the whole first chapter this morning and really mainly want to glean the last two verses of this chapter. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us, from the wrath to come. This morning, I would like to speak on three words that I think describe the Christian experience. And those three words are found in this, this text, and they are turn, serve, and wait. Turn, serve, and wait. It's really exciting to read like the, the reading this morning from Acts chapter 11. And if you keep going there to Acts 17 is when the story of the, uh, the church of Thessalonica was founded and how that Paul and his team went into this place and they preached, and they preached 
that Christ must need suffer. The Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again. And, and a number of the Jews were, were converted and believed in Christ. And many of the Gentiles apparently were converted as well. It's just exciting to see the power of God um, take place in the lives of his chosen people and to bring them to faith in his Son, to turn their lives around. And that is true, I trust this morning, of us, that we have been turned, that we have been changed, that we have been, God has changed in the direction, the very course of our lives, from being a course that pursued ungodliness, that pursued our own sinful desires, and turned us around to serve God. And as we serve God, we know that this is not forever, that the service to God here and now is not forever, praise be to His name, but we also, as we serve, as we work, we're waiting We're waiting with expectation. We're waiting with hope. We're waiting with glorious prospect of the future. We're waiting for His Son to come and to finish out the full work of redemption. So that's what I'd like to speak about this morning. And you say, well, what's the point? Is this just a history lesson? But I think in reality that in a lot of ways we need to be turned over and over again, don't we? We need to to turn, be turned daily back to our God. We have to turn daily back to Him from our coldness and from our sinfulness and be reminded of why we're here, that we're serving, and yet also be reminded, hey, we're serving, but as we serve, we are waiting. We're looking forward to a glorious time to be with the Lord. So if you're meditating on Wednesday saying, what was the sermon about? Just remember those three words, and maybe that will be a blessing to you. Turn, serve, and wait. Paul says, he says, the manner of entering in we had into you, in verse 9, how that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's why it seems apparent that not only were Jewish people converted, but also pagan Gentiles. That they were turned, many of them must have been Gentile, because Paul says you turn to God from your, from your idols to serve the living and true God. A total change of allegiance, a radical turning. They say, as you've heard sermons about the, the first century world of how that idolatry was such a prevalent thing. For us it seems strange because we don't drive around our city streets and we don't see idols to Buddha or or Hindu gods or whoever it may be. So it can be a little strange to our minds sometimes to think about this. This was the norm in which that culture, these cultures lived. Um, I think that that it was about 50 miles from Thessalonica where Mount Olympus was situated. And they could see Mount Olympus from the city of Thessalonica. That was supposedly the home of many or some of the gods. And so their, their whole culture, their whole way of life was ingrained in this idol worship. I remember seeing a modern-day example of this and going to India. And, and, and Brother Mike's been there. And, you, you know, on people's um, dashboards of their car, they'll have idols that, that are there as a good luck charm. And, and there's, there's temples everywhere. And you can see people going in to sacrifice at the temples. And I remember being in Cambodia. And Buddhism is the prevalent religion there. And driving past, and it's basically an idol yard where the guy literally crafts the idols. And he, he has power tools. I'm sure he's thankful for that in this 21st century world. He's got his power tools carving out his idols. And there's all these, just these gods situated, you know, I guess, for people to come and buy. That's where you go and buy your idol, I guess, when you need one. So it, just seeing that, in, in my mind, helps me to think of what must it have been like in some way for them in this culture. It wasn't just saying, hey, let's try a new religion. When they turned to Christ, it was a total radical change. There had to have been family problems for many of them because, again, just going back, again, going back to India, one of the prevalent philosophies there is, is to be Indian is to be Hindu. So if you turn to Christ, not only are you forsaking your family's religion, but you're also unpatriotic. You know, imagine if we had an American religion. It was, it was an official religion. And if we turn from that, and can you imagine people saying, not only are you unfaithful to your family and you're unfaithful to your gods, but you are unpatriotic. You're un-American. Can you imagine the pressure that would be? So when these people were 
changed when the gospel of Jesus Christ came to them, not just in word only, but it came in the power of the Holy Spirit. It came in much assurance or much conviction to their hearts. This was a radical turning. This wasn't just a thing where they said, you know what? This sounds interesting. This sounds new. And we live in a pluralistic culture. Let's try something new for a while. No, but there was a radical change. They had been, they had been shown to see the emptiness of their pagan religions. They had, they had seen that all of these sacrifices that we've done, all of these rituals that we've gone through, they all are vain. There's no life here. There's no meaning here. There's no redemption here. There's no forgiveness here. There's, there's no real hope here. In fact, later on, speaking of no hope, you remember the famous section in 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul says, Don't sorrow, Christians, as those who have no hope. Because these, these pagan religions, by and large, had no use for the body. Had no use for the body after that. Some of them had strange, various ideas of afterlife, but nothing concrete, nothing solid. And so they were in a dark religion without hope, without life. And so it was a mighty, powerful work of God to change their hearts where they saw the emptiness of this pagan way of life. And they saw the light. They saw life. They saw truth. And when Jesus Christ was preached to them, it was as if their heart said, that fits my case. I am a sinner. I am one who has grieved this creator, this one true creator, God. I am one who has sinned against him, who has fallen short of this perfect standard. I am one who is in need. There's nothing that I can do to make myself acceptable before him. I can't dress myself up. I can't run and get some animals or run and get some food or run and get something, maybe some wealth, and bring it to some temple and satisfy him. But they saw that there was only really one sacrifice that really mattered, and that was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who this Paul said that he had to suffer. This Messiah had to suffer and rise again. And they believed that. The Spirit of God showed that they really believed that now there was life because this, this God-man who had died now had risen from the dead. And there was hope and there was life that in the midst of, as the first century cities, many of them were terrible places to live. In the midst of this terrible life full of ungodliness and pain and difficulty, yet now these people had found hope and joy and peace in their hearts and their souls because of what Jesus Christ had done for them. Listen, Christians, believers, may the, may the gospel of Jesus Christ never be stale and old hat to us. It, it gets that way, doesn't it? That's why we have to hear it over and over again. That's why we have to remind ourselves over and over again of our incredible need, of our bankruptcy, of our nothingness before God, and then to see the glory and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have had, had several opportunities lately to, to share the gospel with people for the first time. It just makes it so fresh when you're able to do that, when you tell people the story, just as simple as you can get it, as simple as you can make it, there's a creator God who's perfect. There's a creator God who's perfect and he's holy, he's above all. And one of the best examples of the gospel I've heard before is as if, imagine you're in a classroom and the, the teacher gives you a test and, and you make a 95 on the test and you feel pretty good about yourself. I mean, this is great, 95, I can live with that. That's an A. That, I'm in. That's good. And the teacher says, you know what? Sorry, but in this class it's either 100 or it's failure. It's, there's no middle ground. There's no pretty good. There's no bell-shaped bell curve. It's either 100 or it's nothing. It's 100 or it's failure. It's perfection or it's nothing. Well, that's the way it is with God, folks. God is holy, and He's glorious, and He's exalted. And to come before Him and be accepted with Him, you've got to be perfect. You've got to be holy. And listen, if you claim a 95, you're probably kidding yourself. None of us probably even have a 5. Our, our, our goodnesses are not even as good as we think they are. Then to think that Christ came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's the story of the gospel, that He came and did for us what was impossible for us to do. We could not make ourselves clean. We could not make ourselves righteous. We could not make ourselves oppressive to God. But Christ came and made, as it were, the 100 on the test for us and took away our failure of a test and has given us his righteousness. And these people believe that. 
And so because of that, because they believed that, they, they turned. They turned. They turned away from what was familiar to them. They turned away from what had been pleasurable to them. In many cases, Thessalonica, as many first century places, was a very immoral place. They turned away from their old way of life. It was a radical change. They turned to serve the living and true God. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. How is that relevant for me and you? Especially for those, for those of us who God has blessed us to believe and blessed us to turn to Him. As I said before, there's a continual turning, isn't there? There's a continual turning away from ourselves, turning away from our sins. And listen, we need to do it the way we did it the first time. Not try to clean ourselves up and, and get Armenian for a little while and try to get real righteous and pray a whole bunch and then maybe God will be pleased with us again. But no, we turn uh, and we come to the light and say, God, your light exposes my pride today. Your light exposes, exposes my complaining today. Your light exposes my lust and my jealousy and my covetousness today. So I'm turning back to you. I'm turning back to the cross over and over again, coming back to your grace, begging for mercy and begging for power to turn from these sins in my life day by day. Turning from idols to serve a living and true God. As I said, and you know this, we don't have idols typically in our culture, but we do, right? We don't, but we do. We don't have the, the statues for the most part, but we have the idols. And maybe sometimes those are even more subtle and more dangerous. What are our idols? Look in Philippians chapter 3, the idols of our culture and, and sometimes of our own hearts. Well, Paul was talking about people who were out and out unbelievers, but I think that, that we can learn from this as well. In Philippians 3 and verse, in verse 18, he says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Now get this, whose, what? whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind, the word mind there is the same word in Colossians 3, for set your affections on things above. So let's say, whose affections are for earthly things. And then he contrasts, he says, but our, our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. We have something far better. But look, notice these folks. And we see it in our culture. We can see it in our own sinful nature. Who's in this destruction, whose God is their belly, their natural, carnal, sinful appetites. They're living just for the flesh. It's as if they drink up sin as water. No scruples. Some people don't even try to hide it. No shame. In fact, it says they, they glory in their shame. So, so this is people that we see in our culture who's whose glory is in all manner of ungodliness, all manner of fleshly desires, of, of, of sexual sins, of all manner of evils we could put in all kind of categories. They're God. They give themselves to their, to their desires. They give themselves over as a slave to their own carnal flesh. And their affection, it's because why? Because their affection, their heart, only desires earthly things. Only desires earthly things. And that, we could throw it out in the world and throw it on the unbelievers. And then we look at ourselves and say, well, Lord, do I do that to any degree? Do I give of myself over to my own selfish, carnal desires? Am I serving myself? Is my God my belly? Is, is, is my belly my desires what dictates what I do and how I live and all of these things? Where are my affections? Lord, are my affections on the things of the earth? Or do I need to afresh set my affections on things above and afresh love God rather than loving myself? So there's that idol. On the other end, there could be the idols the Pharisees had. See, the Pharisees, they didn't have idols. They were, I mean, they were Old Testament, staunch, faithful, monotheists. They didn't have idols around. Oh, but they did, didn't they? Their idol was what? It was their fig leaves. Their idol was their self-righteousness. And we can have that as well. 
we keep these laws and we do these rules and we are not like the bad people out there and we are, are diligent and faithful and we do good things and we're good people and that is an idol that's as scary as any of them, isn't it? So we come back and say, Lord, nothing in my hand I bring, simply that I cross I cling. My idol is not in how good that I am. I don't want my idol in what I trust in, what I value to be, who I am and what I've done. But my identity is found not in myself, but my identity is found in the person and the work and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's all found in Him. What other idols could we have? I read a quote this week that I'd never read before describing idols. And as we know that idols could be, again, like we said, out and out evil things, but also even permissible or good things that God has made that we just take too far. But I read this quote from... It was attributed to Alexis de Tocqueville, you know, the French philosopher that came and studied the glory of of America in the early days. And I thought it was a great definition for a potential idol. He says, an idol is taking an incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life upon it. Think about that. Taking an incomplete joy of this world. I think what he means, that is a good thing. You know, a, a, a blessing from God, a gift from God. Taking an incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life upon it. I guess the other way to say it is if, is if I lost that, would I lose myself? If I lost something that I had that was precious, would I totally be lost? What incomplete joys could we potentially build our lives upon? It could be family, couldn't it? It could be each other. I mean, we're supposed to love one another. We, we should treasure one another as family, as spouses, as brothers, sisters, parents, and all of these things. But even those things can become our identity. Even those things can become, well, this is who that I am. This is, this is what defines me. And so he says... The Tocqueville saying here, we could take that an incomplete joy because it's not complete, is it? As a blessing as it is, as glorious as these gifts are, it's not complete. We could take even an incomplete joy and just build my entire life upon it. We could think about our, our, our wealth, money. And that, this is an idol not just for the rich people on Wall Street or in Hollywood, right? This is for common people like you and me. The poor can be, have money as their idol just as much as the rich. So it's for all of us. So we can take an incomplete joy, which is a blessing. I like having air conditioning and food and, 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 e- and even extras. I enjoy extras. I like that. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to live in a free, in a free and a prosperous society. But how could we can do that, too? And Jesus says, he says, be careful. He says, take heed. Take heed and beware of covetousness because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. We could go one way and we could, we could be the person who overspends and just, I've got to have this and I've got to have that and some more of that. And this is what gives me meaning and gives me, gives me life, gives me joy, gives me whatever. Or we could go the other direction and say, I've got a hoard, I've got a hoard, I've got a hoard because this is my security. This is my security. And we, it's not wrong to save. It's not wrong to be responsible. We should be responsible and faithful stewards of what God has given to us. And, and we sometimes have to plan for the future and be wise. And Proverbs has many wonderful principles. But all the while recognizing, Lord, all of this is an incomplete joy. All of this is an incomplete security. We could say it that way because it could be ripped away at a moment's notice. And Lord, even as I have this or I have that, help me to realize that what I have is not what defines me. That what I have or what I don't have is not what my life consists of. Think about the words of Jesus again. Take heed because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. What if that was true? What if our life did consist in the things that we possessed? What if they lost value? What would we do? What if they were taken away? What, 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 what would we do? And so the Lord turns us back over and over again to what really our life consists in and really what our life is possessed of, which is Him and knowing Him and being known of Him. What other idol could we have? It could be the idol, in a different way, of security. 
of, of comfort, of, of, of knowing. Some, some of us have an idol. I'm speaking personally here for myself. If I, if I can just know exactly how everything's going to turn out, then I'll have peace and trust God. You know, if I can just know that all my kids will be healthy and safe, and if I can know the economy won't get too crazy, we'll still be, you know, if, if I could just, persecution down the road, well, if I could just know what it looks like, if I can think about, okay, I can stomach that, then, then I'll be okay, okay? So, so if I can just know how it's all going to work out, Lord, then I'll be trusting you perfectly. But that's not how God works, is it? He says, as your day is so, or so will your strength be. Don't think about tomorrow over anxiously because there's enough evil for tomorrow. So our idol could be security. If I can just know how it's all going to turn out, then, then I'll be okay. You know, there's, there's something of, of a degree of uncertainty in the Christian life. Not as far as God's concerned. It's very certain as far as He's concerned. But from our standpoint, we, we don't know the, the tomorrow. We, we, we don't know the turns around the corner. But I've had to come and have to come over and over again to the place where that's okay. To follow Jesus means that. To follow Jesus means I'm not going to know every turn in the corner. To follow Jesus means there, from my perspective, is a degree of uncertainty. But I say, well, that's okay because I'm trusting you. You're the one who, with you, everything is certain and right and good. So you can think about it in your own mind, perhaps, of some incomplete joys that we could potentially build our entire lives upon that do not glorify God, that do not honor Him. Really what it comes down to is this. The biggest idol of all is what? It's that four-letter word. <laughs> Self. Self. That's the biggest idol of all. As we you know, teach our children, it's not just don't you know, grab so-and-so's toy. It's, it's what's the heart behind that? What's the root behind that? Because it pleases me, because I want that. But it's back to the point of, well, well, am I living my life, Lord, to please you, to honor you, to glorify you? Is my life really all about me? I was so sad. And, and this is a, you know example that I don't think any of you will, will fall for, but, but it just illustrates the point. There was someone I was talking to, a, a believer, a, a wonderful person in many ways. They are talking about a family member who was, who was going through a, a, definitely an unscriptural divorce. And you could tell this person was sad, but then the consolation at the end was, well, you know, as long as he's happy, as long as he's happy. Is, is that what it's all about? Is that, is that the goal of, of my life, that God, as long as I'm happy, you'll rubber stamp this or that, or it'll just be okay? Listen, if God's goal, if His whole goal was that we could be as happy and as comfortable and as ease as we could be, He would have all kinds of followers. He'd have all kinds of servants. I mean, He'd be the most popular thing in the world. But as you and I know, the goal of God is what? It's His glory in our lives. It's our being holy. And when we are holy and we are seeking His glory, then that's when we're really happy. That's when we're really fulfilled. That's when we're really content and satisfied is when we're seeking what He seeks, which is the glory and the honor of His name. Turning from God to idols. So we daily, what do we have to do? We have to daily turn from ourselves. Daily turn from ourselves and turn back to the Lord. And again, it really does come back so many times to the love of self or the love of God. This year at Camp Moriah, I was trying to teach the junior high students. The theme was loving the living God, which is a general, broad theme. So you can teach all kind of stuff through that. And so I was teaching them, all right, what can hinder us from loving God? So I tried to come up with some, with some case studies, some hypothetical people in my mind that would illustrate the point to them of what they might struggle with. And so we, we talked about a, a 13-year-old guy named Fred. I hope nobody here named is Fred because I'm not picking on you. I don't think anybody is here named Fred. But we talked about Fred and how that Fred, he, he had all of his friends around him who were great athletes. And, and they... Um, they were, they were just cool, and they were with it, and they could do well, and they just, they, everybody liked them. He said, if I could just be like that. And so in our story, Fred, he bought himself some, some athletic gear and some, some shoes and some cool athletic clothes and stuff, and he thought, and he's going to really try. He's going to be like his friends, and it just fell apart. It just, all the shoes and the garb just couldn't get him anywhere. 
And, of course, the junior high class about this time saying, is Fred real? Is this a real story? And I was just keeping them on the edge of their seat, you know, so I could, they would stay with me. And, and we talked about how that Fred, at the end, he just, he just crashed because he couldn't reach it. He thought, if I could just be like those guys, then people would, would like me. My life would mean something. I'd really have something to live for. And, and in the story, Fred, just, he just crashed. But then he found out something he was good at, which was, which was academics. And he found out he was good at debate. And he just loved just trashing people in debate because it made him feel like he was worth something. And he didn't care that he insulted people. He just wanted to pound them to the dust because it made him feel like I've arrived. I've, I'm somebody now. And when all of his athletic buddies asked him for help on, on their homework, he would just get this smirk on his face and feel really superior because he finally felt good about what? About himself. And it really illustrated the point. And we had all kind of, we had Jane and we had all kind of names that we came up with and studies. But it all came back to this. It all came back to this. And all the different avenues, it all came back to somebody who is in love with what? With, with themselves. And so if we talked about what's the solution to Fred's problem. What's the solution to all of our problems is Fred's identity is not found in what he can do. It's not found in how um, impressive he is to folks. It's not wrong for Fred to find something good at, find it, Fred, and enjoy it and do well at it to God's glory. But ultimately, Fred, it's not about... Um, what you can accomplish in the eyes of men, it's not about how impressive that you are to people. It's not about how many heads you can turn. It's really all about the fact that you have a Father in heaven who's accepted you through Christ and has loved you. That's your identity. That's what really matters. So love and serve this God above all else. It's true for the junior high. It's true for all of us, isn't it? It's true for all of us. Lord, turn my heart daily back to loving you to where that's my, where my identity is found. So it says they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's the put off and the put on, right? It's not just don't serve the idols, don't serve yourself. You've got to serve something else. You've got to replace it. Turning from idols to serve the real deal, the real substance, turning to serve the living, all the idols are dead, but to serve the living and the true God. Just for a minute, let's, let's think about what idols cannot do that only God can do. What idols could, because listen, all of us, we still need this, don't we? This is not just a nice theory sermon for the Thessalonians. This is what we still need daily with our idols. And so let's just pound these idols in the dust for a while, okay? Let's just, like they did in the Old Testament, let's just knock them to the ground and pound them into powder. What can the idols, what can they not do for us? Because they have an allure, they have an attraction for us. We, 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 we do believe the lie sometimes. We do believe the lie. Well, you know what the idols cannot do? The idols, and I hope this matters to you. I know that it does. I believe that it does. But you know what the idols all the Thessalonians' idols, all of our idols today, all of our idols cannot take away even one of your sins. You know that? Cannot remove even a drop of your guilt. Cannot make you even for a moment righteous before the gaze of an all-knowing, all-seeing, perfect, holy God. The idols can never do that. Not the idol of self-righteousness and obviously not the idol of sin. Not the idol of self. Not any of the idols can ever give us what we need more than anything else. That's what we need more than anything else is our sins to be removed and righteousness given to us. And Christ has done that. Remember when Jesus was going to heal the, or, or, or they brought him to Jesus, the, the man, the paralytic that the four friends brought. And they pounded the hole in the, in, the, um, in the roof. and They let him down. And the first thing that Jesus said was what? Was it rise, take up your bed and walk? He did say that, but that was not the first thing he said. And I think he was teaching us a powerful lesson. The first thing Jesus said was what? Thy sins be forgiven thee. I'm not minimizing, listen, to be healed from paralysis to whatever degree it was. Can you imagine the glory and the blessing of that? But I think Jesus was teaching a lesson. As great a miracle as that is, as glorious a blessing is it to be healed from that incredibly awful and debilitating condition. 
Your greatest need, your greatest need is for your sin to be forgiven. And it's the first thing that Jesus said and gave as a gift to that man. The idols cannot take away even one of our sins. The idols, the idols cannot be a perfect father who adopts us into his family. The idols can't do that. The idols cannot love unconditionally. The idols cannot be faithful as our father can. The idols cannot guide into paths of righteousness. The idols can't forgive when we, when we go astray. The idols can't give real comfort, real comfort, lasting comfort. The idols can't teach us the way of wisdom. The idols can't hear our prayers. In Isaiah, he said, you pray to a God who cannot say, save. You can't pour out your heart before your idols and they hear. The Psalms say, pour out your heart before your God. Trust in him at all times. He's a refuge for us. The idols never say with truth, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. The idols don't care for us. They don't care for us. But our Father gives us that. Our God gives us that. The true and the living God gives us that. He says, cast all your cares upon me. Bring them to me. Throw your burdens upon me. The Father says, I will love you. I will teach you. I will lovingly discipline you. I will forgive you. I will guide you. I will be faithful to you. I'll do all these things for you that the idols cannot do. What's God's ultimate promise of the covenant? I will be into you a God. Everything that you need is a God. I will be that for you. I will be into you a God and you shall be to me a people. I'll carry you through the grave. I'll bring you back from death. I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you promise after promise after promise after promise. That's what our God has given to us. So in view of that, turn. Turn from idols every day. Let us turn from ourselves. Turn from our sins. Turn from even the permissible things that we build our entire, entire lives upon. Sometimes as incomplete joys. And turn to the one true individual who is God who can do all of those things. Who is true and faithful and wise. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So much of what it means to put off idolatry and to put on a true um, worship of God is the valuing of God. Look in Psalm 16. is Because it all comes back to value, which is part of the idea of worship. And I love the language of David here in Psalm 16. In Psalm 16. Before we read, um, read, read this, the verse in Psalms, let me give the background that's going to fit into this. You remember when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land. Remember how that God um, divided out the land for them. And that, that was, that was, we read that, and, but that was a big, big deal for them. They had been um, uh, in, in, in wandering for, you know, for all these 40 years in the wilderness, and the nation before that had been slaves in Egypt for all of those years. So this was huge. It's not just we're going to pass through somebody's land and let us stay there and get water. We're going to have our own land, our own place that God has promised to us. This is ours. It's our kids. It's our grandkids. It's our great-great-grandkids. This is the family land forever. It was, a, it was a blessing to them. It was huge to them. So when they were going to cross over into the land, Joshua divides out the inheritance. Okay, the tribe of Dan, you will get this section. The tribe of Benjamin, you'll get this section. All the different tribes, you have their section. And that was precious to them. It was, again, it was for their families forever. Remember in the year of Jubilee, if they had to sell some off, it goes back to the family that, that you know, had lost it. So it was just an incredible blessing to have their own land, their own place. Look at what David says in Psalm 16, verse 5, in view of that. They had their portion. They had their specific inheritance they'd been given. Well, look at what David says. David says, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. I bet David had good land. He had a palace to live in for a while. 
I bet he had good land, had good possessions. I'm sure that he was excited for his, you know, he was excited for his son to rule after him, you know, Solomon, but he was ultimately looking to the ultimate son of David, which is Christ, of course. I'm sure he probably loved to think about his grandkids playing on his land and all that goes into that. But David says, when it gets right down to it, you know what my land is? You know what my portion is? You know what my wealth is? You know what my treasure is? He says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. Somebody defines the portion there as one's highest good or prized possession. One's highest good or prized possession. As you look into your heart this morning and do a little heart surgery by the Holy Spirit, can you say that? And does that need to be renewed in our hearts to say it again? Lord, you are my highest good. You are my prized possession. You're my prized possession. There's some things I could do without, I don't want to do without. I don't want to do without some of these blessings. I don't want to do without health. I don't want to do do without my family. I don't want to do without all these blessings that God gives. But you know, at the end of the day, and I don't say it lightly because I don't want it, but if God took those things from us, but we had Him, but we had Him, we would still be rich and blessed. If we have Christ, we have everything. We have everything. If we have everything else, but we don't have the Son of God, we have nothing. We're bankrupt eternally. What is your prized possession this morning? What's your highest good? Turn to God from idols to serve the living, living and true God. The living and true God. Well, back in First Thessalonians chapter 1, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Turn, we're turning away from idols, we're turning to the living God, the only one who can satisfy, who Jeremiah calls the fountain of, of living waters. So we're turning to Him, away from our idols daily. To do what? To serve. To serve the living God. To serve the living God. Paul says it well in Acts 27. Acts 27 was when they were on the ship and they were the storm was coming and everybody's panicking and God graciously gave um, Paul a vision assuring him of their safety. And, and this is just, it, Paul just kind of says it in passing. It's such a glorious um, description of what our lives should be. I want to look here in Acts 27. Acts 27 verse 23. This is kind of an identity statement. Um, of Paul's life, and I think it should be of ours as well. In, in 27, 23 of Acts, he says, I'm just breaking into the context, for there stood by me this night the angel of God. Now, now listen to these expressions. Whose I am, that is God's, whose I am and whom I serve. We talked about identity. That's, Paul said, this is my identity. I belong to this God. That's my, he's my father. I belong to him. I'm purchased by him. I'm in Jesus Christ and here's my life description. Here's my job description. God, whose I am, I belong to Him, and whom I serve. That's my life. Paul said, I belong to this God, and I've given my whole life to the service of this God. That's what I'm all about. I serve His interests. I serve His glory. I serve His kingdom. I'm honoring His name. Listen, there is no higher job description than that. There is no greater calling in life than that than to simply serve the living God. Isn't that how Paul identified himself in, other, in the epistles? Paul, sometimes it's an apostle of Jesus Christ, or sometimes it says, Paul, I'm just a servant of God. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I remember, um, it's probably, you know, so many of you have heard the same thing. I remember my parents telling us over and over again, and just was ingrained, that, listen, what really matters in life, you know, great if you get a good education, great if you, you know, turn out and prosper in your career and all this, but listen, if you're a if you're a, a, a plumber or a, you know or, a, or you're cutting grass or whatever it may be, top of the line, bottom of the line, in between that all that's immaterial. All that what matters 
is if you're a servant of a living God. That's what, that's what success is defined by, if you're a servant of a living God. So, so we practically serve God just in our everyday lives. It's not just, yeah, I really want to be like Paul so I can serve God and do all these great things. Well, God may call us to do all these exciting, great things. But as you and I know, we, we serve God daily. We serve Him in our homes. We serve Him in our, in our relationships with others. We serve Him in our work. We serve Him in our attitudes. We serve Him in our actions. Every day is to be said like this, Lord, today is for you. Today is for you. I heard of a man one time, it was in one of the, one of the European countries where they were um, you know, more polished and, and regal than we are. And I, as I remember the story, this man would get up, I think it was a pastor or somebody, he would get up every morning and he would go and he would, um, would, would get himself ready and he would dress up to the max and he would bow and say, Lord, today here I am in your service to be used at your disposal. That was just his ritual. Every day he got up and he put on his best and he knelt before God and just saying, Lord, today here I am in your service. Lord, today... If we would get it really practical, Lord, today my words are to serve you. Today, Lord, my attitudes, the motives of my heart are for you. Today, Lord, the way I interact with others, my treatment of others, my relationships, today, Lord, that's for you. Lord, today as I go to the job, I'm really working for you because I do want to live a Christ-saturated life. And so, Lord, this work today is for you. Lord, today, get it really practical, this, um, this dirty diaper is for you. <laughs> you know? Today, Lord, this discipline, this, we've got to deal with this issue, it's, it's for you. Because I want to bring these children up for you because it's all about you. Lord, today as I'm hurting, as I have sickness and I have pain, I, I want to try to suffer well, Lord, it's hard. But help me to suffer well today if that's what it takes. I want to glorify you. Maybe it's someone in old age who suffers and they can't do all the things they would like to go do like they used to do. But Lord, today, even the suffering, let, let this be an offering to you today for your glory. Lord, obviously today as I go to your house, this is for you. This is about you. I want to serve you. Lord, as I think about my future, think about my goals, would you guide it? Would you lead it? Because I, I want it to be in your service. They turn from idols to do what? To serve. To serve the living and true God. That's how we ought to see our lives. Not turning from idols to be a spectator, but turning to God to serve Him, to live for Him. But listen, I'm really glad to tell you this morning that's not the end of the story. It's not just we live in this terrible world, we serve, it's hard, it's difficult, we have struggles, we have challenges, we have pain, and we just serve, and there's some days better than other days, and we're in Romans 6, and we, sometimes we're doing the things we hate, and that's just what it's, that's the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. This world is not the end, brothers and sisters. This is not the end. This is not the end. God's plan is not in right here. But he says to turn from God from idols, to serve the living and true God and something else, and to wait. So we're turning away. We're serving our God with all of our heart. But as we do that, we're waiting. And to wait for His Son, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. We're waiting for the final appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. To wait for who? To wait for who? For one of the angels? I mean, God sent angels into very important missions, isn't it, didn't He? He sent angels to sing the night Jesus was born. He sent angels to roll the stone away from the, from the tomb on Resurrection Day. He sent angels to win battles for Israel in the Old Testament. He sent angels, no doubt he still sends angels to minister to us as heirs of salvation according to Hebrews. But listen, this is a mission so glorious. Yeah, there will be angels there. There will be saints coming. But what really matters is, is the sun is coming. The sun from heaven is coming to retrieve, to redeem, the, to make redemption final and complete, to carry out to carry out the full culmination of our salvation, waiting for His Son from heaven, this glorious one. Listen, can you imagine the majesty of God, the majesty of Christ that will be revealed on this day? Listen, the shout of victory, the glory of Christ being shown forth. 
when Peter and James and John got a glimpse of, of Christ unveiled, it was wow. It was, they hit the deck. They became as dead men. Listen, we are going to see, we're going to see the unveiling of the glory of the Son of God. We see it now in the Word. We see it now by faith. It's glorious to our ears. It's wonderful to our hearts. But there's a day coming when Christ unveiled is going to shine forth and we will behold Him. We will be like Him. We shall see Him as He is. He won't come with the, with the, um, the lowly human nature. Now it's the glorified God-man returning. And He will come in all of His glory. Christ will be exalted in that day. We know it, don't we? Christ will be magnified in that day. So we're waiting for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Well, what does it mean for us? It means, again, this world is not forever. That's what it means. It means today this world is not forever. God has a purpose. God has plans. God is very wise. We might say, Lord, we've had enough of human history. It's, you know, it's proven us enough about the, the sinful nature of mankind. We've seen enough of it. We're ready to go ahead and wrap this thing up and, and get the real glory started. That's what we're waiting for. But God has a purpose, doesn't He? God has a plan. And when God's plan for humanity and His plan for this world, this side of, of glory, is completed, and all of that has been executed and carried out, then our Savior will return. But God has a purpose until that day. It means also that we have hope. It means that we endure because we have hope. It means that we have victory. It means, again, back in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 3, when he's recalling their virtues, he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, so their faith led them to work. Your labor of love, their love for Christ led them to labor. But then what else? And your patience, or we could translate it, endurance of what? Of hope. How is it that we endure? How is it that we endure in fighting our sins? How is it that we endure through suffering? How is it that we endure through the challenges of life and, and do it with joy and do it with victory? We endure because of what? Because we have something called hope. We have something that's a glorious promise of future glory that God has given to us. That's how we endure. So, so endure this morning. Endure because you know where the victory lies. Endure because you've been turned and you're serving, but endure because you're waiting. You're waiting for something incredibly glorious. Turn, serve, and wait. To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Look in Second Peter chapter 3. How do, how do we wait? How do we wait? Some practical on how we wait. I won't read the whole section but I do want to just kind of get the summary verse that Peter gives here in verse 14 of 2 Peter 3. He talked about the promise of the new heavens and the new earth and the, the, uh, the day of the Lord and all of these things. And so he says, Wherefore, beloved, verse 14, seeing that ye look for such things. So we're looking for great things as well, are we not? We're looking for great things of Christ's appearing. So wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be what? Be diligent that ye be, may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Be found of him in peace. I imagine if, you know, if our kids get old enough to where we can go out on a date and come back and, and we, we drive up the driveway and, and we pull out of the car and we hear screaming and fighting all the way from the outside, that, that wouldn't be a very comforting feeling, would it? We'd like to come home and find the, the children just peaceful and warm and getting together and say, it was great, Mom and Dad, we just got along, and that would give us a good, peaceful, warm heart, wouldn't it? Do we want our Savior to return and find us, as Galatians says, biting and devouring each other? over pettiness? Does he want us to come back bearing grudges of, of unforgiveness and bitterness? Does he want us to come back slandering one another and all of these things? He says, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot. So you're not living like the world, but you're, you're living as if you're waiting for him without spot and, and blameless. In 1 John chapter 3, or chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, 
in verse 28. He says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. When he shall appear, we may have confidence and not, not be ashamed before him at his coming. So the idea is that we're, we, we, when he comes back, we're, we're not embarrassed to see him. When he returns, we're not saying, oh, no, here he is, and we've got to really clean up our act really fast before he sees us. But no, when he comes, we're saying, all right, well, we're ready. We do have our flaws and our sins, but ultimately we're, we're, we're wanting you to come. We're waiting for this. We're longing for this day. Oh, that we would be like, like Simeon. Remember Simeon when he was waiting for the Messiah? And he had been given that vision that he wouldn't die until he saw you know, the Messiah. And his whole heart was set upon that. His whole heart was set upon the coming Messiah. And so what is he doing? He's just ready. To, he's ready for him. He's preparing himself for his coming. He's rejoicing in this coming Messiah. And when he gets there, all of his joys are complete. Just let me die now, Lord. I can go ahead and die. Because I've, I've seen. I've gotten my fulfillment. I've got what I was looking for. Listen, if we love Christ, as Paul said, there's a, there's a crown of righteousness awaited, uh, laid up for us and not for me only, Paul says, but for, the, for, who, for those who love his appearing, those who love the one who's going to appear. So we turn, we serve, we wait. We wait with, we wait with confidence, with joy, with endurance. We wait in diligence to serve him. We wait wanting to be found of him without spot. We wait for him with joy because we love him. We long for his return. That is the Christian life. There's many descriptions. That is the Christian life. Turn and serve and wait. God has blessed us as believers to have, to have turned, to have turned in repentance and faith from our sins, to turn from ourselves and to turn to Christ and to see His glory and His majesty and to serve Him and to wait for Him. But if you're like me, you need to do that every day. Every day we need to turn and serve and wait with joy and with peace. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you for real people like the Thessalonian believers of many, many years ago. And we thank you for that, Lord, in your power, you got glory for yourself in a pagan town, in a pagan city. Um, you turned people from idols to serve Christ, and you were glorified. And Father, you have left on record the very epistle that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to them for our instruction and for our edification and for our comfort. And Lord, I pray this morning that, that these words that I have tried to speak, I pray that it will be just that for this group of believers, that it will be edification and instruction and, and comfort to our hearts, Lord, that it will convict us, that you'll turn us every day. Lord, help our appetites to be for you and not for idols. Help us to, help us to turn um, to Christ daily. Help us to wait. Help us to look forward to that great day that we have. Help us to live in victory, Lord. Help us to live as if we are victors because we are through Christ. Bless this church, Lord. Guide her. Prosper her. Give her wisdom for her future. Um, bless her with unity, with joy, with peace. And just in every need that she has, out of your fullness, make grace abound. Bless all of us that are here today, Father, uh, that we will serve you and love you. In Christ's name, amen.